going back to your piece, The Road to Germany, $2,400, you shadow and followed 11 individuals who were trying to get from Budrum in Turkey to Germany. And they come from different backgrounds. Four of them come from Damascus, some come from Latakia. Um, How did you find these people and why did you try to focus on these individuals Mm -hmm. to tell the story? Well, in Kos, Kos actually, so I met them once they had made the made the crossing. So from Bodrum, then myself and the photographer that was with me, we went to Kos. And, you know, there were Syrians everywhere. And I just happened to be in a garden. And I saw this group with speaking Syrian Arabic, but of different accents. And there were physical cues that indicated that they were sort of from different classes and different backgrounds and different levels of religious observance. And... You know, it was very curious to me, like, what was this, how was this group together? And so I started talking to them, and I, and I found out that they had met on the raft coming over, and they hated the situation on the raft. They hated the smugglers. They felt like that there were some really, like, bad people on the raft with them. And they had decided to stick together once they had gotten to Greece. And in Greece, refugees tend to spend about six days before they can get their authorization papers to leave. So in those six days, they had, you know, shared information with each other, shared cigarettes, shared coffee, had sort of stuck together and were were supposedly going to make the trip together. And, And I decided to follow them because... They kind of were a really interesting cross-section of Syrian society. You know, one woman was the daughter of Palestinian refugees. So that already kind of goes to some of the traumas that that have been perpetuated for generations in the region. There were two sisters and a brother who were, you know, very, let's say, very comfortable in, in the kind of urban class you find across the world. You know, they, they spoke English and Arabic. One sister was in art school. The other had already graduated from college as an interpreter. They weren't just positively Syrian. You know, they could have been, they could have been anything. The other group included a man from Idlib, his wife from Selma, and then the other guy was from Latakia. I mean, you know, they were, and then the abandoned teenager was from Homs. I mean, it sort of was an opportunity to give a reader a lot of information about mm-hmm. Syria and, and to not make it be a monolithic experience because, you know, journalists often, you know, who do they have access to? They have access to activists or fighters or government officials or opposition officials. And this was a way to sort of remove that layer of people who have been the voices that we hear in the media and, and get to a more a more diverse group. And at the same time, it was heavily female. And a lot of these refugee stories have not, the journalist has not had the access to women and has written much more about men. And they had children. I don't know. To me, it seemed like the right group. And, and they were very gracious about accepting me and the photographer that was with me onto this journey with them. And in order for them to leave uh, Syria, they had to sell their belongings, Mohammed and Sosen. They saved $18,000 by selling their car and some gold jewelry, but hoping to return someday, they asked a relative to mine their apartment. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody would love, you know, if the country were at peace and it was a kind of viable peace that didn't depend on complete oppression and the deprivation of rights, nobody would choose to live in these cold, like, rural areas where some of these camps are in Germany and Sweden over, you know, what what is their home. I mean, everybody loves Syria. 
they would, of course, rather be close to family and friends. And, and, and in the case of Sausana Muhammad in their apartment, it's, it's very hard to sell an apartment in, in a situation of war. And, of course, they have money tied in that property. So, you know, they're asking a relative to tend to it also so squatters don't come and live in it while they're gone. I mean, this is something that's happening to people's property in Syria. And this is why, you know, I have a relative in Aleppo, you know, middle class, who will not leave because she does not want some kind of internally displaced people to come and take her house and then she never get a chance to get it back. I mean, there's some people who just, they navigate this in different ways. It's, it's a choice that everybody makes. The style of your piece is also very interesting. It's a hybrid of nonfiction comics and long form essay. Josh Neufeld, who is a nonfiction cartoonist, collaborated with you on this project. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to add comics element? Uh, the story includes 11 pages of comics panels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was that was the idea of the editor-in-chief, Mindy K. Bricker at Foreign Policy. Because this story, even though the actions all happened in September and October, the story was coming out in January. And as we discussed earlier, people sort of, I think, they think they already know the story. And there's something non-intimidating about comics. It uh, makes people feel, I think, that they can access and engage in this story and it's not out of their reach because they don't know enough. And it also doesn't, you know, it doesn't make you feel guilty that you don't know enough or aren't doing enough. I think maybe because for whatever reasons our brains are programmed to think of comics as something that children can access. And so I think we have much less of a defensiveness in approaching the material. And, and it seems to have worked. We were sort of taking a gamble because a lot of refugee stories keep coming out, but this one got a lot of play and a lot of attention, I think, because it was novel and how it told it. And it also lets the refugees tell their own stories. These panels really fill the gaps. I'm sure you took a lot of notes because I'm not sure in the beginning whether you knew that this is going to be in a hybrid format where bulk of it is going to be consisting of these comic panels. I didn't know. I mean, I kind of went because this is important to my work in general. I do intend to use the material in in a much more longer way and with a over a longer period of time in the future. But I had kind of written out the narrative, which made it much easier for for Josh to take, you know, to only take a small piece of it. I mean, this is not even the full adventure, but it is a it is a small piece of it and to make it digestible. And it also incorporates real photographs. You know, this was the one thing that I wish we could have incorporated much more because with me was a really award-winning, well-regarded photographer from Magnum. And his pictures were some of the most beautiful, really, because he was on the journey. And I'm Syrian-American. I speak Syrian-Arabic. We had much more access to to the refugees, really, I think, than other journalists that, you know, I... I wasn't on the margins. I was able to really talk to a lot more people. And his pictures, which unfortunately are not featured to their maximum potential here, are really some of the most beautiful. But they can be seen at Magnum. And I think we'll continue to have like a longer life as well because they're part of, of a much larger project of his own work. You were there. So you mm-hmm. were witnessing some of these conversations that later on were reflected in these uh, comics. Yeah, I was. On, I did this trip with them. I mean, so I was, we obviously, we never crossed illegally into any country. So in those moments, we would go cross legally and be waiting for them at their, you know, illegal crossing. So they were moments when we were not together. But the, the way that they did this in the comic, the pink scenes are scenes that we were actually, you know, also, they're verbatim. I was there for them. So as you said, there have been 
so many articles and news stories written about refugees. What was the story that you want to tell with your reporting? I think I wanted readers to know these people much more because, you know, in all the stories that we've read, the refugees' voices are not a huge part. You know, they were always like, we love Angela Merkel or, you know, mm. Jordi Menis. You know, we love our country, but our country not safe. There's war. I mean, you know, I, I just like wanted to... I wanted to sort of share, let the readers or the viewers have a much more intimate relationship with the people that were that were making this trip. So are you following the lives of these 11 individuals yeah. that you covered? So can you tell us where they are now? Naila and Maisam are in the sisters who did not make it to Holland mm. because they got arrested in Germany, yeah. are in Germany. They will do just fine. They can move in and out of different cultures easily. Mm. Sosan and Muhammad and their kids have been given an apartment of their own and they'll soon be starting Swedish lessons. Muhammad, you know, because he's a single guy, has not really been like given a place to live yet by the Swedes. And I think, you know, they obviously see single young men as much more, th- I think there's a perception of them as threatening, especially after like a few reports of sexual assaults that are coming out of Europe. And then Ihsan has completely disappeared. I'm going to Germany next month and it'll be easier to search for him from there, but they don't want to be reached by Muhannad because they're paying him back, obviously. Alia Malik is a Syrian-American journalist and author of A Country Called Amrika, Roots, American Stories. She's currently a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Nation Institute and at work on a new book about Syria. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Join us again later for another edition of A Status.